What are the rules that I'm setting for myself for these things I'm saying I should be doing? You know, getting 10,000 steps every day. That I'm just doing it because like society has told me I should or I've absorbed some message saying that makes me a good person. Versus what are the things I really care about? What makes me feel alive? What helps me grow in ways that I really value? Where do I want to be in the future? For myself, not for other people. Welcome back to another episode of the Anonymous Third Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. Thank you for being here. We are on week 17, and I have an amazing show today. Dr. Devin Price is on, who is a social psychologist, writer, activist, and professor at Loyola University. Price's work has appeared on numerous publications, such as Vox, Slate, Rumpus, NPR, Huffington Post, and also has been on the front page of Medium, which is a big deal. I found out about Dr. Devin Price from their book, Laziness Does Not Exist, because the words jumped off the page to me. And I'm like, what do you mean laziness does not exist? Of course it exists. I've seen it my entire life. But that's not what this is about. That's not what the book's about. But on today's show, we dive into the paradox of laziness. We dive into living to someone else's expectations, upward social comparison. We talk about learning something new to alleviate stress and a whole lot more. If you are suffering at all with anxiety or you're doom scrolling or you are looking on social feeling like you are not as good as someone else you're seeing, this episode is for you. I'm really interested in your feedback. I'm going to stop talking now so you can put on your shoes, go for a run, do a chore, get lost somehow in the words of Dr. Devin Price on today's show. As always, looking forward to your feedback, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome, Dr. Devin, to the Anonymous Third Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this book, Laziness Does Not Exist, Reddit, cover to cover, I thought it was very interesting. A lot of the guests I have on the podcast, the podcast is called Not Almost There. It's almost the antithesis of laziness does not exist. But there's so many good topics in this book that I'd like to dive into today. But the first question that I have for you is what are the most common misconceptions about laziness? Yeah, so I think the biggest misconception about laziness that I would have to say, having been talking about this book with a lot of people, is every person I talk to about it seems to think they are the most lazy person in the world. <laughs> like whenever I do talk to someone about like the barriers and challenges people face and how we don't recognize that um, that motivation and getting things done isn't just a simple matter of willpower people immediately kind of respond to that idea with, sure, that might be true for other people, but I know that I'm lazy and I'm not doing enough. So I think that's the first misconception about laziness is that people have is that people don't give themselves enough credit for what they are dealing with and what their limitations are that they're facing and just how um, really we're all doing too much, basically. Um, the other big misconceptions about laziness that a lot of people run into, again, is thinking it's about willpower, thinking it's a decision, um, thinking that you just need to cram more things into your schedule and, um, 
accommodate that new schedule, whatever your goals are that you're trying to meet, whether it's exercising more or, you know, applying to graduate school, whatever it is, when really all of our time is already accounted for. Even if we have time that we think we're wasting, wasting time, resting, having a sense of play and relaxation, those are really basic human needs. We've just had it really drilled into us to think of it as negotiable or something that we can kind of power through or use, use that time in a more productive way. Is there a fine line between being too lazy and not lazy enough? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's the laziness that we use in like kind of the benign way, like having a lazy Sunday, right? Uh, the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling up to doing anything and I'm going to really luxuriate in taking a break and it feels good and that's healthy. I think we really need to celebrate that more as a culture. Then there's the thing that we call laziness that is more depression, burnout, um, learned helplessness even sometimes. Like if you see someone who, for example, has been applying to jobs for months and they haven't been really getting anywhere and then they lose kind of the will to go on because their efforts, efforts haven't been paying off and it's really depressing, you know, that's, that's a kind of laziness that is not restorative, right? That is a person kind of being blamed for responding in a psychological way that makes a lot of sense to repeated failure and kind of having your agency being kind of taken away from you. So when I think of the kind of two-sided coin that is laziness, like, yes, there is honoring our needs for rest and rejuvenation, and that's beautiful and good. And then sometimes when we call someone lazy, what we're actually doing is kind of blaming them for responding to being in a really challenging or hopeless seeming situation. And of course, that kind of laziness is just um, something where somebody really needs a lot of help and support to kind of get out of that spot. I know in the book, you talk a lot about quality and not necessarily hours that you're putting into something as well. So just taking the topic of, of work and I lead a company, there's about 800 employees in my organization and I've seen this over the years. And my goal is to have those employees and team members. I, I, truly look at a lot of my team as an extension of my family and I care about my family and I care about them, their mental well-being, their health. And I'm a big believer in trying to shut down when you can, but a lot of them feel like there's this sense of too much work to get done. But then I see examples uh, of great control where someone can really shut it off at a certain time and when I look at the outcomes, which you talked about a lot, their outcomes are sometimes greater than those people that are putting in a ton more hours. How do you, how do you rectify that? And if you are one of those people that just can't seem to get things done within, let's call it your nine to five, and then you're carrying things over, how do you take a step back and really start to analyze what you're doing? And are you being efficient during that time period? Or is that even a good way to look at it? Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing to do is look at the kind of workplace culture that you're in and the kind of norms and whether those norms really line up with what actually makes sense and what is good for you. So speaking as a professor, I have a lot of students who have this idea that uh, if they come to me asking for help, they have to really prove to me that they worked hard enough to deserve that help. So they'll say, 
I've been reading this textbook for, you know, five hours every night. I'm just staring at my notes and they're putting a lot of hours in and they are suffering. Like they are really working hard, but they're not working smart. You know, they're not looking at the at the quiz study materials in advance and really zeroing in on the things that I've highlighted in the slides, you know. They're not, they're not thinking strategically. They're thinking, if I work hard, I will be rewarded. And that's good in and of itself. And I think that's true in a lot of workplaces too, right? There's norms of, I need to be the last person to leave or the last person to log off of the Slack channel, I guess, at this day and age, um, and just really perform almost suffering <laughs> because that looks virtuous rather than actually looking at what are my outcomes? What are the supports I need to meet those outcomes? How am I being measured? What are the things I can deliver? So as much as you can flip the script and kind of reframe, not in terms of hours or suffering, but to really highlight, here's what I did, here are the outcomes um, and the people that I've helped or the skills that I've learned, um, the better off you're going to be. And that also means taking stock of, of what it is like in the workplace you're in. And if you need to still conform to that expectation of looking like you're working hard, because unfortunately, a lot of managers don't um, really look at the evidence that shows that that being more outcome focused is more important. So sometimes you do have to be strategic and find ways to kind of like sneakily prioritize the things that matter um, if you're in a work environment where it's all about looking busy and that kind of thing. And what I, what I also love about the book is there's a lot of action in here. There's a lot of like, here's how to think about things in a different way and you dive into some of the topics regarding around notifications and alerts. And we were, we were one of the early adopters of Slack and we use it as a way to, of like reduce internal email because we would have external email from clients. You can't control that, but internal email is so inefficient. So uh, I think I was the one, I actually know I was the one that created the first Slack account but now it's it's become this place where it's it's just like if you have a thought about something, let's go to Slack and let's just put the thought out there so someone else can do the hard work to think through it. Are you, do you is that a common thing that you're seeing? And and how do you go how do you go back to that employee that's just putting their thought out there that wants the easy way or the the what I would consider lazy way before I read your book? Um to like put in some more work before you start asking questions and push it on someone else. Mm, yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple of things kind of going on there. Um, so, so first taking a step back and looking at, at Slack and the various ways that we use it. Um, I think it has done so much to save people from things like unnecessary meetings, emails, and in some ways it's like very much in the spirit of work smart rather than work hard. But I think it is also a place where people can kind of perform like I'm present, I'm speaking. Sometimes people uh, just want to be heard and are using it as a form of like social snacking, basically, especially right now since most people are working from home. So finding ways to kind of tease apart those various motivations and having different channels for different kinds of goals, I think can sometimes help. Um, but... You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution would be if someone is just kind of throwing out an idea into the Slack ether and expecting someone else to take action on it. I think um, in some ways, like that would come down to 
this has been a problem in organizations for a really long time, that if someone just kind of is coming to you, asking you to kind of do the work of looking up something uh, and finding a resource that's already out there and it's not in your job description, like empowering employees who are dealing with that person to set boundaries and kind of say, oh, I can't work on that right now. Or like just really articulating that that isn't part of their role um, can be important. Um, And then also looking at, yeah, what is the motivation for this person that they are putting these ideas out there? Is it because they actually just, they want to look like a higher order thinker and they're trying to get rewarded for having vision and it's not quite (laughs) working out the way they're trying to make it work out? Are they just, um, are they trying to meet a social need? I think a lot of times in the workplace we have meetings and projects that we embark on because we want to be in contact with people, I think, especially right now, because we are kind of isolated. And so finding ways to meet those other needs and redirect it, it'll vary from person to person, but that those seem like variables that might be at play in there. I know you work with students and organizations. What kind of productivity is being lost by this notification immediate culture that we are in now where everything's one click and the expectations are set that I need an instant response and I need to respond to someone, someone's Slack comment to me right away or email or text message. I, I could obviously list a hundred different examples, but what is, what are you seeing out there in terms of like now versus before we had this, are we being less productive or more productive? So the research on um, the interference caused by digital work tools pretty consistently shows it really screws with our ability to set priorities. So a lot of times uh, we neglect the really focus intensive kind of private work tasks that we really just need to sit down and write this report, analyze this data, write this bit of code, whatever it is. Um, that you really need to kind of sit down and detach from notifications to do in a really thoughtful and careful way. And often those tasks, that creative, productive labor is really the center of our work. But um, because of Slack, email, phone notifications of various kinds, people jump at things that seem immediate because they're framed as immediate by the notification that actually are less pressing. So people lose the ability to set priorities. They lose a lot of time that they could have spent on their bigger projects because they're constantly kind of putting out little fires here and there on Slack and an email. And it really does um, cause people to be more distracted and stressed out, which does create more errors and just, um, you know, more of a risk of burnout if it's at a really extreme degree, but just also lower job satisfaction and, and anxiety, which does really impact a person's quality of life and their performance. So it's um, it's one of those things where it was a, it's a very useful tool, but we've just overutilized it to such a degree that we're not thinking anymore about are we being strategic about it. So for an action step, do you recommend muting notifications or allowing that communication during quote unquote business hours? Yeah, absolutely. And I would even set certain hours during the workday that are, and I've seen some organizations have started embracing this, having like a few hours in the morning that are like no email time unless it's absolutely a 
you know, a fire that does need to be put out so that people get a couple of hours at the beginning of the day to work at, focus on their specific work tasks or things like that. Um, and, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. There are a lot of organizations now that are looking at, you know, no email after 8 p.m. or no email after 6 p.m., whatever the policy is. On Slack, you can even get more granular and have notifications for some channels turned on and have notifications turned off for other channels. So if people are talking about something that is not critical for your role or they're just socializing, you can turn off those notifications and then just get ones for, you know, a specific project that you care about. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend all of those things and really encourage employers to look into them and, um, and put them in place where is, where is appropriate. Cause it also just helps set a different organizational culture where we aren't constantly having to prove that we're, you know, compliant and quick to respond and, and those things, which, which can breed so much anxiety that again, it really gets people's priorities off base. And I know in the book, you have some examples of, of people that are, have been work obsessed and work themselves to becoming sick. And you were, you ha- you were like that. Um, can you, can we back up a second and explain how did you get interested in this topic of laziness and what happened to you to start thinking about it in a, in a different way? Yeah. So I am someone whose life is kind of the like reduction to absurdity of the idea that like your worth is determined by how hard you work. So I was a very good little worker bee, straight A student for most of my life. And even for me, it was not a sustainable way to live and didn't bring me, you know, the success and health that we're kind of taught in our culture that that working hard and sacrificing gives to you. So I finished college early, finished graduate school early, went straight from graduate school into a postdoc um, at 25 and uh, had a few publications under my belt, few, uh, including some first author publications. I was checking all of society's little boxes for here's how you be a good scientist and a good worker and all this stuff. And um, I was not listening to my body. I was not taking care of my relationships. I developed really severe anemia and a heart murmur. I had this weird fever that would like hit me every night at about 6 or 7 p.m., Um, I would feel normal during the day and then I would just be like shivering all night long. And it went on like that every single night from February until November of uh, 2014. Um, And I had all these medical tests really trying to figure out what was going on. I was still trying to work during the day like nothing was happening. Uh, And eventually I just hit on needing to rest. Like there wasn't any kind of chronic health condition that was diagnosable or that I could get treatment for. I just needed to actually stop trying to negotiate with my limits and actually listen to them and cut dramatically back on how much work I was doing and really rethink my career path as well and do a lot more like freelance, adjunct teaching, have more flexibility in my life. And then I got better. And that made me just really re-examine the entire value system that I had really been raised in and that I'd really not only internalized, but I had been like succeeding by that value system. And even for me, it just was, was not sustainable. And you, you talk about too, like how this has existed in America since the Puritans. Why did we get to a place where everything was measured by how hard you can work? And, uh, and truly it's become, the value in many cases of, of a human being, like in terms of how productive they are. 
in many ways from looking at assembly line output to what you're doing in your life uh, to athletics. How did we get from those early stages to now? And is it getting better or worse? So, um, so this belief that a person's worth is determined by their productivity and that laziness is immoral, like you said, it goes back to the Puritans. Uh, when the U.S. was being kind of colonized, it was a very useful ideology to have because you had all of these people who were trying to build communities from scratch and didn't have a lot of resources if someone was struggling um, or if someone was depressed and couldn't, quote unquote, carry their own weight. And so um, it was a very useful belief system for kind of motivating and pressuring and coercing people into working hard. It was also very good for justifying um, society's failure or, or even outright exploitation of some people. So if this person in my community is suffering because they're depressed and they're not pulling their own weight, if I just believe that they're lazy and laziness makes them kind of almost evil, then I can feel okay about whatever suffering they end up facing. It was also really useful for justifying enslaving people to believe that there is a group of people who are lazy and need the structure of being forced to work. And that's really what was in a lot of the ideology and like writing justifying slavery at that time. Um, and it's been with us ever since because it is such a convenient thing to reach for. Um, if you blame all homeless people for being too lazy to get a job, you don't need to look at how did they end up in that position. And what do they actually need to get out or to thrive? Um, if you have a group of people who are medically excluded, so let's say fat people who are just not included in most medical testing and studies, and so medicine really overlooks them and fails them, it's really easy to justify it and make sense of it by saying, well, it's their fault for being too lazy and having bodies like that. And if they would just change their bodies, then we wouldn't have to worry about the fact that we don't even know how much anesthesia they need because we've never tested it. Things like that. Um, and so to answer your other question about whether it's gotten better, I don't know that it really has. I think it's just taken different forms, you know, under COVID. And as soon as people started working from home, employers immediately started reaching for things like key logging software and screen tracking software. Those things got a huge uptick in investment last March because employers were afraid that people were gonna get away with something while working from home during an international disaster, you know? So I'm th I think unfortunately it, it is a slippery belief system that kind of changes forms depending on what political or social need we have at the time that it kind of meets, uh, but it's still very much with us um, and is ever evolving. You had mentioned uh the physical side of things and bodies and the way people look. And I know through Instagram, you had a really good example of Asena. I think that's how you say her name, Asena O'Neill, and how mm -hmm. she was an influencer at a very young age and then got to a place where she realized a lot of what she was doing was a facade. So she went and deleted a bunch of pictures. Are you seeing that as, or much more, much more prevalent. Obviously, technology has made it prevalent, but it almost seems like it's getting worse in the sense that everyone is living to someone else's expectation. And one of the things that I want the audience to understand from this book is that you really talk about your benchmark should be yourself and making yourself happy and not necessarily looking at others. Can you unpack that a little bit? 
Yeah. So in social psychology, we sometimes talk about upward social comparison. And upward social comparison is just looking at someone that you perceive as superior to you in whatever way and using them as a contrast to judge the ways in which you're coming up short or are a failure. And we all do that to some extent. And sometimes it can be okay to like aspire to something, to look up to an artist that you admire and to want to be creative like them. Um, that can be fine. But uh, with social media, we have so many influencers and celebrities and people with really curated feeds that we can upwardly compare ourselves to in basically every realm of life in, and just make ourselves feel inadequate in terms of, you know, my house doesn't look like that. My body doesn't look like that. I don't make art like that. I don't write as much as this person. There's this unending list. I don't parent my kids that way. It never ends the number of things that you can unfavorably compare yourself to other people on. And um, and we also, like you mentioned with Asena O'Neill, we don't notice and can't see the strings being pulled behind the camera, all of the ways in which a person's feed is being curated and edited and carefully staged to create the illusion of someone being super productive, independent, creative, beautiful, accomplished, all that stuff. Um, and so because we don't see how much effort goes into it, we think we should be capable of all that stuff too. Um, I've started to see a little bit of a change in trend sometimes on some social media sites where it's like at least faking authenticity and having some some wrinkles and, and pimples gets a little bit more normalized. But um, it's just a such a massive industry, whether we're talking about weight loss, you know, um, home decor, parenting. It touches basically every area of life that we go online to learn about. And a tip that you give, because in some cases it's hard to get over some of this envy, if you want to call it that, but a tip you give is to focus on the similarities, not necessarily the, the differences. What else would you say are some things people can do to, you know, if they are following someone for for other reasons, if they inspire them in certain ways, like that necessarily may not be a bad thing. But you can look at maybe not the delta differences between you and that person, but the similarities or what else would you say is a good, some good tips? Yeah, yeah. So as you said um, before, using yourself as your own basis of comparison and taking a growth, personal growth mindset is always really beneficial. Um, so even if you are taking in awesome things that other people are doing, taking the time to detach and say, what are my goals for myself? And who am I, you know, how do I want to improve myself and compare my present self to my past self in kind of a growth and evolution oriented way? Um, looking, as you said, to people that we admire with a spirit of uh, similarity. What are the values that I have in common with this person? How does this person represent a group I belong to in a way that makes me feel really proud to be a member of that group? Those kinds of things can be really motivating. It can also be really motivating to learn how much doctoring and manipulation goes into these curated images. So there have been some studies showing that, for example, teen girls uh, using social media, if you educate them about how airbrushed photos are and how edited they are, then looking at those perfect quote unquote images have less of an impact on their self-esteem in a negative way. So doing research and realizing this stuff isn't objective can really be helpful. And then finally, the last thing that I would recommend in this realm is 
go outside of your own field or your own area of interest because we don't compare ourselves as much to people who are doing something that's completely different from what we're doing. So, you know, I can watch someone do, you know, amazing skateboard moves and not feel inadequate because it's not something I ever have done, probably aren't planning on ever learning to do. So I can just really appreciate the athleticism and artistry and just go, wow, it's so cool what human beings are capable of. And I'm just one person and I'm not going to do it all. One of the stories that you you talk about is you're trying to learn something that's hard or that you know you necessarily wouldn't be good at. And in your case, it was strength training. It was lifting weights. And I think that got you excited. When I read that, admittedly, I'm like, that is not lazy. Like you're when you're going into uncomfortable situations and going to a gym or lifting weights or just doing whatever, like that is the antithesis of laziness to me. So how do you, um, how, do, how does that help? I guess, first and foremost, I don't want to get into a semantics over that part of it, but I really like that story in that you're like, you can cope with some of these other things that you're feeling negative about by trying to learn something else. And I have, I have a story in a few minutes on that as well. Yeah. So, so believe it or not, trying something new that you're bad at can really help you kind of make peace with like the fear of laziness because I think um, there's a spirit of play that can come out when we're doing something we're not good at the ability to just kind of explore and see what feels good and what we actually enjoy doing instead of meeting some standard. And um, it can be really humbling in a way that just puts things back in perspective. Um, I think a lot of people who really have like, embedded in a kind of workaholic belief system, we only try things that we're really good at and we can be really perfectionistic and that sucks the joy and the internal motivation out of just about everything. And so uh, doing something that you are never going to be the very best at allows you to stop judging and evaluating your performance relative to other people um, and makes it a lot easier to notice when you make progress. So, you know, now I can do a sit-up. <laughs> now I can do a few push-ups. I used to never, I was never capable of that until I was in my 30s. And uh, if you put me in the ranking of, of most humans, I'm still incredibly weak, but I'm not comparing myself to other people in that area because I know I'm never going to be the best at it and I don't even care. I can just see, whoa, I can do things now that I wasn't able to do before. And I can like feel the like muscle ache a few days afterwards and it's kind of like enjoyable, you know? Um, and that is that helps us reconnect with our with our bodies, our emotions, and what we actually enjoy and want to do with our lives instead of constantly chasing after this achievement, trying to impress people, that kind of thing. How did you pick strength training as one of those things? So I had um, a leg injury from using a standing desk too much. And so I couldn't really do the exercise that I had been doing, like walking, running, stuff like that. And a friend recommended to me some, some lower back exercises that were going to help with the leg. Um, and that helped me realize that a lot of uh, strength training wasn't as intimidating as I thought it was. I really thought it like was not for me. It was just a world I hadn't accessed before. And then also... So I'm transgender, I'm on testosterone, so I it was paying off in a way that like any attempt at getting stronger hadn't paid off in the past. 
um, just because, you know, chemically I was better set up for it. So it was just like the perfect time and the perfect um, kind of constellation of clearly what I'm doing to take care of my body right now hasn't been working. I shouldn't be at this standing desk all day long and shouldn't just be only doing aerobic exercise. I'm ready to get stronger. It's an affirming, you know, gender affirming thing to do. And, um, and I had a friend who was willing to show me a few exercises and just say, Hey, you can think of exercise as a way to take care of yourself and celebrate who you are instead of this thing that you like punish yourself with to stay in shape, quote unquote. Since you wrote the book, has there been another challenge like that that you've embarked on? Ooh, let's see. Hmm. It's been it's been hard since um, since the pandemic has set in. But before the pandemic, I was really getting into like cosplay and like anime and video game conventions and things like that. Uh, that was an area of life where I used to think it was too like silly and frivolous that like people would look down on on me for doing as like an old, as a person in my thirties or whatever, that was like too old to do those things. And it was too late for me to learn about them. But I had started going and again, just really appreciating the incredible like artistry of these, like these outfits and like, like armor that people like hand make for, for conventions and was starting to put things together myself. So I haven't gotten the chance to really put together any amazing uh, cosplay outfits yet, or like go to any conventions, obviously, but that's another one for me where it was like, I have no sewing skills. I have no, you know, chain mail making skills. I don't know anything about it, but it's just a really cool, expressive, nerdy art form that is not respectable or impressive. And so it's so freeing to like learn more about and practice a little bit, getting better at. What have you created from those practices? Um, so, so far, I really like the game uh, series Metal Gear Solid, if anybody listening knows those. And that's a very like... Um, it's like a military espionage game. So I've mostly just been like sourcing different like replica, like military uniforms and like pins and badges and putting things together. Um, and so just even like the, the hunt has been really yeah. a fun part of that. I haven't sewed anything yet, but it's been, that part's been really fun. That's cool. And I promised a quick story on, on my side. So I, I try to have like a yearly meaningful challenge um, and it's, and it all consists of doing something new that I, I hadn't learned before. So similar to your story with, with us, with, uh, you know, training mine this year was jujitsu to uh, go from not even knowing it at all to being in a, my goal is to be in a tournament at the end of the year. And, um, and I'm saying my goal is to win the tournament, but just to be entering the tournament is a, is a goal and a, and a feat in itself. But the reason I did it is because it's scary. It's, you know, I'm in my 40s and learning a martial art and going against people that have, have been practicing something like this for a long time. But the end results, you're right. It is very, very humbling when you start something new. Because if I looked at my peers, there's plenty of people in their teens that would um, outperform or or take me down in a jujitsu tournament, you know. And and same with there's people in their 60s and 70s and possibly even 80s that can as well. So it's 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 interesting that I be, I really believe you can combat these feelings by trying something out of your comfort zone. And the first day that I went to the first class, 
that was the most nerve wracking day, just probably similar to when you walked into the gym the first time or you were lifting those weights. It's just, it's hard. So I'd encourage people to just think about that and think about trying something new. And if you're not good at it, like I've, I've made a point to say, like, I'm not a fast learner by any means. It just takes a long time for me to absorb things and put things into practice, but I will keep putting that effort in over time. So I wanted to share that with you because it's, it was uh, when I read your, your strength training um, challenge that you, you given yourself. Um, I, I really related to it. Mm, yeah. And hopefully by the end of the year, uh, there will be tournaments open back up. I don't know. I, I don't know how that's working right now, but hopefully you'll get to. Yeah. Or, as, believe or it or not, are, I don't know. yeah, some states that did not uh, slow down <laughs> at all. I mean, I mean, you can imagine <laughs> yeah, it's true. quite different. So a lot of people are traveling to Indiana and Florida and you know all the typical states that that have pretty lax uh, COVID restrictions. So totally, uh, yeah. I'm going to shift topics a bit to just the information overload that all of us face today in in everything. If that's news media or work or social media, what, what can you do to create a filter to basically weed out the noise and the negativity and things that aren't going to make you feel good, but really kind of get something out of it. If you do want to, if you do want to understand what's going on in the news, or you do want to follow a friend on social media. How, how do you get some of those, the goodness out of it, but not the bad? Yeah, it's so hard because social media and just digital news is engineered in a way to like keep you stuck and refreshing constantly. So I think the first thing a person has to do is really like take a step back and re-examine their own values and assumptions about what being an engaged citizen or even like a good friend is um, because the algorithm algorithm on social media is set up to show you new things from people that you disagree with so that you'll get into a fight and they'll keep getting ad views. And, um, and that's not the same thing as being a responsible citizen, like constantly flooding your body with stress and annoyance and getting into fights with people or just reading really upsetting information constantly is not the same thing as being a responsible and plugged in person. And in fact, we have some research showing that when people consume too much negative information, it makes them lose agency. People feel like they have less control because they're so overwhelmed by these huge problems, you know, climate change, uh, something like that. And that makes people more passive and less likely to take action. So if you really care about the world and you want to be involved, you have to really think about what are the small concrete things I can do in my community that all have a measurable impact and I can really recognize that I'm making a difference and feel motivated so that I can keep going. Um, and when it comes to information, what amount of information do I need to make good decisions about how I want to spend my time? So for some people that might be checking the headlines at lunchtime every day. For other people, it might mean uh, looking at the news a couple of times per week. Um, I What I'm doing right now is I have a time limit set on my phone, um, which I think most phones have this, but iPhones definitely do. So if I have used Twitter and Instagram for more than a half an hour per day, they're locked down. So I, I get, I, you know, peek my head into there and see what's going on. But I, I'm, if I get swept away in 
in you know doom scrolling. Do you do that in the out of it in the screen time app? Is that the app? Mm-hmm, yeah. You use? Okay. Yeah, I use the screen time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, other people set like active hours of the day instead of just a firm time limit. For me, a firm time limit works the best. But some people have it set up like oh, I'm only allowed to check the check Twitter at you know from ten to eleven a.m. every day or and whatever. Do, do you adhere to that but, pretty strictly? I do, um, except for when I am posting content related to my book or something that's kind of career relevant, then sometimes I'll undo it to check the notifications um, and and be a little bit naughty there. But um, for the most part, it really does help uh, remind me to back away and that I'm not doing anything useful with my time and to go read a book, take a walk, you know, call somebody on the phone, something like that. Um, so those are all things I recommend and really just, um, pushing against the pressure that we get online that says our attention and our anxiety is like moral. Cause we get a lot of messages that are like, you're not reading enough about this issue. You're not doing enough to show up for your friend who's suffering. And we're all being asked to do too much right now. And so sometimes we are going to disappoint people. Sometimes we aren't going to be, you know, perfect, uh, activists or whatever. Um, and a lot of the pressure that we get that tells us to do more and to pay more attention to something is actually counterproductive. Do you think some of the increase in mental health issues are due to the fact that we're more connected to online media, especially during the last year in COVID versus the past and reading those headlines typically they're negative because they that's what gets the viewership. Is that a cause or is that a causation or a correlation between kind of what's going on right now? So I think looking at evidence from the past, we have some indication that it is causative. So um, when 24-hour news channels became a thing, Um, several decades ago. That was pretty swiftly followed by an increase in fear uh, and anxiety related to things like crime. Um, And often the fear was disproportionate to the actual risk. So 24-hour news channels became a thing. They needed to fill those 24 hours with content. So they started reporting on more small crimes that wouldn't have gotten reported on as much in the past. People see that footage, they get the illusion that crime has actually increased when actually it's just their awareness that's increased. And then from that, we see people are more afraid to leave their communities. They're more afraid of their neighbors. They feel more anxiety about the world. It it influences people's political opinions, all kinds of things. So, and Pew has been reporting on this disparity um, between like the reality and people's fears for, for decades now. So I think from that, we can kind of make a logical conclusion that seeing even more news, even more constantly via social media is going to make us more anxious, more afraid, think things are more severe than they actually are sometimes, um, and really erode our mental health, Um, especially when you connect that to the research that we do have showing that just like pretty relentless social media usage does does make people more distracted and anxious just in general, Um, not even just about the state of the world, but just getting lots of notifications makes you more jittery. Um, and I do also think it's an autocatalytic process, meaning it's like a thing that worsens itself. So we're lonely and we're anxious. So then we reach out for more information thinking it will help. And then that makes us more anxious and it's kind of a downward spiral. 
I need help with something. My wife is a victim of this in the sense that she got rid of social media on her phone primarily because of different viewpoints that she didn't agree with or negativity, whatever reason she just was, it was not appeasing her, but she took that time and now she has these news apps and I see her constantly from the morning she wakes up till we go to bed, like just scrolling the news and I want to be able to give her advice to say detox from that or just stop using it. But I think I feel like she supplemented something bad with something even worse. And I'm wondering, like, I'm sure that she that this isn't an uncommon thing, especially now. What advice do you would you have for her? Yeah, yeah, it's so common. I, I definitely experienced that myself. I started by setting a limit on Instagram and then my same compulsive habits migrated over to Twitter. I kind of symptom hopped. <laughs> so it's really common. Um, I think it depends on a person's motivation for doing it. So so the frequent news checking I, I see and doom scrolling, there's kind of two causes there that are really common. The first is mistaking information for power. I mean, we're taught knowledge is power when we're young and throughout our lives. Um, but as I already mentioned, too much negative information actually overwhelms us and floods our nervous system. It makes us harder for it makes it harder for us to remember facts. It makes us harder to critically engage with an argument and kind of pick apart the problems with it. Um, and it can paralyze us so we're actually less likely to take action. So um, slow finding ways to slow down and kind of really internalizing and learning for yourself. Knowing more isn't the same thing as doing more or making more of a difference, or even being more empowered. Um, I think that's really important. So finding another way to feel like you're making a difference or you're doing something meaningful instead of educating yourself and informing yourself, that can help kind of address that. Which again, for some people that'll be volunteering for a community garden, other people will mean helping out, you know, your neighbor who's having a hard time, something that makes you feel like you're, you know, in control of your reality in some way. The other thing that uh, often leads to doom scrolling, especially since the pandemic hit, is the need for stimulation. Um, we're all really understimulated right now. And we're almost kind of like detached from the physical world. Um, so we don't have any novelty. We're not going anywhere new. We're not having like a lot of, you know, parties or social engagements that bring stimulation to our lives. And so we just keep refreshing these apps that are like making us anxious and angry because that's the only way we can feel something. So if that's what's going on, and I know that was definitely a big part of it for me, finding some way to get stimulation, whether that's going out to a park and going on a hike, meeting up with a friend outside, having a conversation, trying a new video game, find some way to inject some novelty and challenge into your life so that you can get some of that energy out instead of just going into the, the stress spiral, um, which again, easier said than done. It's still really hard right now to detach from that stuff. I really like the comment on reading headlines because to your point in the book, you you talk about, and there's evidence for like, you don't have to be an expert in every single story, but the headlines will in many cases get you what you need. And if there is something really specific that you should know about, or you want to know about, then dive in there because that's where a lot of the 
opinions of the writer can come in to cause this emotional reaction. Um, so I thought that was that was a really good tip. You also talk about um, sad block and blocking people as well that bother you. And that's one thing, well, that's one piece of advice that I told her. I said, you don't have to, like Facebook isn't, uh, like Twitter, you, it, you social media has their pros and cons. Like Twitter, you can follow a bunch of people and you it's easy to get that negativity in the newsfeed. Facebook, you can control a little bit more and Instagram. You certainly can as well. But I just, my advice was unblock or block, I should say, some of those people that are causing you distress. Have you done that or have seen people do that? And does that help? Yeah. Yeah. It's so wild to me how much you have to remind people that it's okay to block and mute. That's something that I've been noticing a lot, having been writing about this stuff the past year. Um, I just heard from someone yesterday who said they felt bad not watching all of a friend's Instagram stories because they're like, well, the people can see if you've watched all of their stories or not. So if I just watch one person, a person's like first story, and then I exit out and don't watch the rest, they'll be mad at me for not watching all of their stories. And that just like blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, as if we need more things to feel guilty about right now. Like, yeah. You don't have to watch anybody's Instagram stories. Um, so yeah, I think we have a really messed up relationship to like what we owe other people online. And I really encourage people to rethink that you actually don't owe pretty much anyone except for your closest loved ones, your attention. And if they're really close to you, hopefully you're connecting in some other way than social media. Um, and yeah, you can mute and block absolutely anyone or delete the app. You don't owe anyone a response or your attention. One thing that I wanted to uh, to clarify in in many cases you were you used to wear a a Fitbit watch or Fitbit device of some sort, and that w- it seemed like it was pushing you or making you have emotions that you needed to go work out or you'd feel guilty when you didn't, so you decided not to wear it. But in another way, um, it would having read that it was pushing you sometimes when you when you were not wanting to to do something and i i guess going back to my original question is isn't that in some cases a good thing that something is going to push you a little bit further at when you should be pushed further not necessarily always but sometimes yeah yeah so the way i like talking about it and that i talk about it in the book is looking at what your values are and what you're putting your energy towards, right? So um, so I have a lot of students with ADHD, for example, and that's a group of people who, generally speaking, really benefit from having structure, incentives, um, something like an app or a Fitbit that's kind of reminding you and facilitating you meeting your goals, right? So there's nothing wrong with craving that kind of structure and support. It, for me, it really comes down to looking at what are the rules that I'm setting for myself or these things I'm saying I should be doing, you know, getting 10,000 steps every day that I'm just doing it because like society has told me I should, or I've absorbed some message saying that makes me a good person versus what are the things I really care about? What makes me feel alive? What helps me grow in ways that I really value? Where do I want to be in the future for myself, not for other people? And when it comes to those things that we really value, you know, sometimes we 
we do want to be pushed forward and um, and have a structure or something motivating us to move forward. And um, the funny paradox with laziness is often the way forward in one realm is by doing less of something else. So by not wearing the Fitbit and pushing myself to overexercise, which is something I really did for years, I have more time to to read and to write and to, you know, consume art and to socialize with people and put, you know, energy in towards those things that I also value that I sometimes need a, a little bit more of a, a kick in the pants to actually get done. And I think that's an important point, though, is like you supplemented that time with something else versus just making every day a lazy Sunday. Yeah, yeah. This this book isn't really about like, don't do anything. Like there's a lot of books out there about like self-care and rest and bubble baths. And that's all well and good. But like, what I actually want to see is people just doing with their lives what they care about and what makes them feel good. Because um, doing people have a drive to feel useful and uh, fulfilled. And a lot of us, the real disjoint is that we're being asked to pour a ton of energy into things we don't care about and that aren't giving us that sense of reward. And so learning to say no to those things so that we can make a life that looks like what we want it to look like is kind of the goal. Yeah. And I, I love that message. And that's totally what I, what I get from the book in the sense that you can, you can create a routine, a, a self fulfilling prophecy that you're stuck in. And what you talk about is like giving yourself permission to say, this is not fulfilling me in the way it did before, which is what I really like about it. And then it's to take inventory and stock into what does fulfill you and then start doing more of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. And it can change over time. You know, the things that we commit to doing on a regular basis for a while, because it's, you know, an, an art form we're trying to learn, an instrument we're trying to master, you know, for a while, that might be the structure that we need. And then after a few years, we might say, why am I stressing out about trying to practice the guitar for an hour every day or whatever it is? Maybe it's time to move on to, to something new and just getting more in touch with those feelings and, and being able to set those kind of ever evolving limits um, and draw boundaries where we, where we need to can free up so much time to do what we actually want to be doing. And some of those things I know for myself had it, have an impact on my, my children when I get stuck in my own routines that I created is if I, when I take stock and inventory in my life, most of the obligations I have are from things that I decided I wanted to do. But then those come at a cost, not only to me of maybe not being fulfilled in those anymore, but to my, my, my children. And then all of a sudden you get this parental guilt and you talk about that a lot as well. So I want to transition to that topic for parents out there who feel like they're being, let's let's say lazy or they're giving their, their children maybe a day where they're just like letting them be on their device. And I know I, my wife and I do this as well because it's, it is, it's easier in many cases. What advice do you have for parents to feel better about themselves during those times and, and giving parents permission to be lazy because sometimes it's not only about yourself but it's about your kids and and how they're growing up yeah so in developmental psych we have this concept of the good enough parent 
there have been a lot of different beliefs over the years about what a good parent is. You know, you had your like battle hymn of the tiger mother idea that you need to constantly be pushing your kid to be perfect at everything. You know, they, we had the era of attachment parenting that was all very like touchy and feely. And a lot of those things are just, uh, they just set up parents to feel like they're not doing enough. Even though the research kind of shows that the good enough parent, a parent who, you know, doesn't abuse their kid, meets their kid's needs, loves them, and can admit when they make mistakes, that's the really crucial part. That's how you actually set your kid up to be a resilient, flexible person who can form relationships with other people and admit fault when they're adults, too. Um, so it's actually really healthy for your kids to see you not having all the answers. You know, you don't want to make them responsible for for solving that, but just kind of having humility and saying, I'm tired, I'm having a hard day. Today, we're just eating chicken nuggets out of the microwave and that's okay, you know. Um, that's that's realistic, that's what life is really like. Um, so it's actually good to model those things. And when you take that pressure off, you're just able to be a more present, relaxed parent too, which is great. So I had a previous guest on, Patty Morrissey, and in her house, she left a table that her daughter can just do anything at the table, like arts and crafts and and just explore her creative mind. And I know a lot of times when you walk into a home, you have this self-obligation, and you definitely feel it when people are coming over, everyone's going to hurry up and clean up the house. And I think some of that's natural, but then the other part of it is she's like, you know what? That is her space. And I love I love that idea in this in the sense that like it's this creative outlet, creative space. There's no rules over here. And I think that is um that's just a good way to look at being a parent and it being okay to to what you said earlier. Like, hey, it's okay to feed the you know, your children chicken nuggets. If you're doing that 365 days a year, then maybe you're gonna have a problem or you will have a problem. But, you know, sometimes it is okay to give yourself permission for that. Yeah. Life has mess, you know, we can't parents are asked to do way too much and juggle way too much, especially right now. Oh my gosh, like the Zoom school, I don't even know how anyone can handle it. So, you know, we have to let out some of the seams a little bit so we have room to breathe. It's just it's just too much. And it's, and it's actually healthy and good to model that for your kids that like life isn't perfect. We all are trying to balance a bunch of different things and set priorities and here are the things that are the most important. Here are the things we're going to be a little bit lax and have some wiggle room on because that's how you, that's how you're an adaptable person is if you have that wiggle room. Does all of this boil down to being as happy as you can be or having joy in life? Does it boil down to this? I think it boils down to listening to our feelings. Yeah. So chasing joy, finding the things that feel playful and inspiring, the things that like give us awe and make us want to grow. And then also listening to the negative emotions and not judging those. Because I think a lot of us see negative feelings as an impediment to being a productive, worthy person. So what things in my regular schedule do I dread who do I hate being around? Where do I feel resentment and exhaustion? You know, like, what do I just not have the will to do anymore? Like observing those feelings with a spirit of this is data about what matters in my life and where I need help or where I need to cut back is so important. 
and learning to really just revel in the things that do bring us joy is, is equally as important. Absolutely. And, and I think though, if you just keep asking, well, why, 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 why it boils down to joy and, and happiness because you're filtering all of, all of that out. You're doing more of what you want. You're, which is allowing you to become a better whoever you want and, and better is not defined by someone else, but by yourself. Right. I, so if someone listening to this needed to start taking inventory today or to, or was inspired to start to really look at their own life, what are the few steps that just apply to almost everyone that they can start doing some actionable steps? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is assume your every moment right now is already accounted for and take a little time to describe or like keep track of how do I spend my day versus what my goals are in life. So just look at what your daily schedule looks like, not what your to-do list looks like, not what your aspirational schedule is, what you think you should be doing, but how do you spend each hour of your day? And that's your baseline. And there you want to notice like what is out of step. So what goals do I continually not meet? And how do I feel about the fact that I'm not meeting those goals? And what in my current life that's taking up a lot of time is something that I don't actually care about all that much. I'm doing it for some reason other than myself. And can I cut back on that? Um, Those are the starting places, I think, really. Looking at how we spend our time, really being honest with ourselves about, you know, for me... I don't get any writing done in the late afternoon, so I just need to not schedule that kind of work for that point of the day, for example. Like, that we have limits. We have, we have times during the day where we just need to zone out or, or, you know, go for a walk or whatever it is. Just really describing our habits instead of judging them and trying to be at war with ourselves. And then cutting out the things that take up a ton of our time that we don't actually care about so that we can center the things that, that we do care about. You mentioned uh, the screen time app, um, the sad block app. I kind of alluded to Mm -hmm. that you talked about in your book. What are some other resources, whether that be books, podcasts, um, just think just other things to think about that you, that you find helpful? Yeah. Um, so in the book, I talk about a, um, values, uh, reflection tool that you can kind of use to think about what do I want my life to really look at? What do it look like? What do I really value the most in life? Uh, it's called the values clarification exercise. And, um, if you just Google that, that will come up uh, for free online. Um, that I think is really good for kind of taking a step back and thinking about what do I really want my life to look like? Um, So that's another one that I recommend. But a lot of this stuff you can really do just by, you know, having a spreadsheet or a calendar that you keep track of, you know, how am I spending my time? How do I feel about the way that I'm spending my time? And can I get honest with myself um, about that? Um, And the other one that I do mention in the book also is um, a reflective writing exercise that, again, that's something you can Google and find out the kind of tools and resources for it. If you're someone who really finds yourself arguing with like, oh, I shouldn't be tired right now. I shouldn't take a break right now. If you have those kind of roadblocks, um, 
that reflective writing exercise can be really good for just setting aside time to check in with your body and your mind and see, okay, where am I really at? What do I really want to be doing? And so that can be really helpful too. That's essentially just writing down all of your thoughts for a period of time and it doesn't have to make logical sense, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Basically it's just setting aside a 28 minute chunk where you're just writing about, um, the way they usually describe it is a source of distress in your life. And you just write constantly for that 20 minutes. If you run out of things to say, you can just start over again. And it's not supposed to be pretty. It's not a beautiful essay or a poem. You're just kind of getting the feelings out on the page. Um, and if you're someone who isn't super in touch with your feelings all the time, it can be really helpful to help you get in touch about what's bothering you or, you know. What, what in life you're resenting having to do or, you know, just any, any kind of emotional roadblock you're facing. Nice. And last but not least, this will be an easy one. How can people get a hold of you and find out more aside from buying this book, Laziness Does Not Exist? So uh, I post a lot of writing on Medium at devonprice.medium.com. So D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E dot medium.com. And then on social media, even though I am trying to limit my usage of it, I am still on there pretty much every day. Um, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff is at um, Dr. Devin Price. Well, thank you very much. I know I know, we talked a lot about social. A, a lot of this stuff has a purpose. It's just limiting what you feel is right for you and, and don't feel like you're on someone else's measurement Um and don't feel like you have an ob- obligation to anyone else. Um, it's not a bad thing to be on social. It's not a bad thing to read the news. But it's good to start taking stock of what makes you happy. I think we touched on a lot of that today. This book is filled with it. And I can't thank you enough for being part of this show, Dr. Devin. It's been a pleasure to get to know you as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Joe. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to the Anonymous There podcast. And Dr. Devin Price, I can't thank you enough for being my guest today. I learned a lot. I'm sitting here looking at both of my arms. I have two fitness devices on. And if I didn't have the why, I would question it. But I definitely do in my case for training. But there were so many other nuggets in here. And I love the fact that we really took a deep dive into not living up to someone else's expectations, which I think is so true. And so many times we fall in that trap. We're just looking at others. And the best thing you can be is your authentic self. That's the one thing to get out of this episode. Be your authentic self. Do things for you that line up with your values. I appreciate your time. I know there's a million podcasts literally on the the internet. I'm going to start to talk about Refuel, a conference we have coming up in December. And we're solidifying or have solidified our lineup. And that was really kind of the why behind this podcast is to keep the momentum going from that conference. I'm super excited to share the news with you. If you haven't yet subscribed to my mailing list, anonymousthere.com, you will be the first to know. And there's going to be limited in-person tickets. So if you are interested in that, you will have the kind of the first crack at it outside from our team who is uh, who's always invited as well. But it's going to be a lot of fun, and every year it just gets better than the year prior, and uh, we're striving for the same this year. I, I don't know how we top it every year, but we seem to. That all being said, I hope you have a great week ahead. Please share or leave your comments on this episode. Again, can't thank you enough, 
And remember, you, me, we are not almost there. <laughs>